Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Please note, this podcast is not suitable for children. You're listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. Marion Partington is an English writer and the sister of Lucy Partington. Lucy was abducted and murdered by Fred and Rosemary West on the 27th of December, 1973. A Quaker and a Buddhist, she works as a storyteller in schools and prisons for the Forgiveness Project, a charitable organisation which explores forgiveness reconciliation and conflict resolution through real-life human experience. Forgiveness isn't a noun that you tick off, it's an ongoing verb in everyday life. Welcome, Marion, and it's great to see you again. Um, Today we're going to be talking about your sister Lucy, and Lucy was abducted by Fred and Rosemary West and then was found, wasn't she? in the House of Horrors, as they called it then. Um, Can you take us back, if you wouldn't mind, to your childhood, actually, Mm -hmm. with Lucy and paint a picture of the person that she was? Yes, well, Lucy was my my youngest sister. Mm. And and we were quite different in a way. Um, She had her own set of friends and I had mine and we were supposedly sharing a pony, but I was pretty mean about that at times. (laughs) But um, when she was growing up, my memory of her was that she was always making things. So she used to make little tiny bridles out of bits of string for our toy horse or she'd she'd make little toy saddles. And then one day she made a, a bag that... Um, she she liked to get back to first principles. So when she was eight, she went round the field where we kept our pony, Felix, and she gathered sheep's wool from the hedges and took it home. And I remember her breaking thorns off a rose bush and pushing them through pieces of cardboard and and teasing out the wool, purifying it, getting all the bits of moss and earth out of it and making this pile of softened wool and then she made a spindle with a pencil and a cotton reel and she spun a very long wonky thread then she made a little loom and and wove a piece of cloth and divided into three sewed up the sides and it was a little bag and she gave it to me um and whenever I speak in prisons or wherever I'm asked to speak I I still have that little bag and at at one point in doing this work 
I, I decided to take it with me and share it because it, it was a place to start in a way. It was mm, a in it, part of her. Yes, it was survived. something tangible and it was something that spoke of her desire to get back to first principles. It spoke of her kindness, her generosity, mm. her creativity. And um, the other thing, she also loved words and she would always be seen reading and she wrote, used to write her own poetry and have a wonderful relationship with our grandmother who they used to share poems that they'd written. Mm. How many um, siblings were there? Was it just you and Lucy? No, or? and two brothers as well. Right, so the four yes, of you. the four of us. And growing up in leafy... Yes, we grew up in the Cotswolds in Gloucestershire right. in a little village... Um, which was quite, there was a village school that we all went to, but then we got sent off to a private junior school in Cheltenham and had to go on the train early in the morning, and that kind of separated us off in a way. From your brothers? Well, no, from other children in oh, the right. village. But then we, we still had our friendships, but we were a sort of middle-class family living in a very rural Gloucestershire yeah. village. And how old were you and how old was Lucy when she disappeared? Can you tell me about that time? Yes, well, it, it was 1973, two mm. days after Christmas on December the 27th. And at that stage, Lucy was um, 21 and I was 25. And we were both studying English literature at university as I said, I was Lucy used to claim to do the opposite of those around them, her, which was mostly me. So, and my mother always said, you know, Marion likes to taste the whole worm. You know, I was out there wading around in the late sixties, experimenting with everything and enjoying it. And Lucy was as if she was in her ivory tower. She was very sort of scholarly and chaste and. So she was the sensible one, um, yes. you were the uh, I was the one. wild one, <laughs> the rebellious one. And um, yes, so we were quite different, but we did share this love of literature and we shared a love of T.S. Eliot's The Four Quartets and we used to muse about the, um, the, the, the phrase, the still point of the turning world. And that became a quite important, those words, to me later on. Yes, so that Christmas we were all gathered together and Lucy had chosen, we were both in our final year. I was I was studying in London and Lucy was at Exeter University and, um, and she'd chosen to be received into the Catholic Church in November, five weeks before she was abducted. And that was quite a step really because we didn't have a religious upbringing but although our great-grandparents were involved in the China Inland Mission, so there was sort of religious family in the background, but my grandmother had rebelled against her very religious upbringing, and that had rather rubbed off on my mother. And my father had waxed and waned in his Anglican belief, so two of us were christened and two of us weren't, and I wasn't, and Lucy was. So it was quite, you know, and my parents got divorced when I was 12 and Lucy was eight so that was quite a trauma in our family really and I think that affected our ability to trust already and maybe had an influence on Lucy's choice to find something certain in life mm. um, 
she was very sensitive, very witty. She had an acerbic wit, which we didn't share that, but one of my brothers did. He was very close to her in that. And, you know, mm. they used to sometimes watch television programmes and make sort of clever comments. And How did her path cross with Fred and Rosemary? Well, my sense is that it was a completely random thing that happened. Um, she was visiting her friend Helen in Cheltenham, who lived on the what was the, called the Evesham Road and um, quite near the Cheltenham racecourse. And, and that night it was particularly dark because there were the the miners' strikes mm. and there was the, all the electricity was there was deliberate power cuts. Right, and being late December as well. Yes, it was December the 27th. And so she'd been visited her friend Helen and she'd taken three things with her, which again, to me, represent her sense of direction in life, how she was hoping to live. And one of them was um, my last present to her, which was a little cut glass Victorian jar that you could put a nightlight in and she was going to take it back to her hall of residence and she'd taken it to show her friend and another thing was her an application to the Courtauld Institute of Art where she hoped to do a postgraduate course in medieval art and she was very interested in the medieval period and then the the third thing was a, a a text that we both studied, which was a medieval text called Pearl, thought to be one of the most beautiful poems in the English language, which actually um, became a sort of clue for me much later on in how to shape the book that I eventually wrote about this experience. Mm. But it was a very sort of strangely pertinent book for her to have with her in that it was all about grief and the, a father's grieving about the loss of a young daughter and he it's something called the medieval dream vision dr genre so in that genre people are having a difficult experience and they go to sleep and have a a vision or a dream and in that there's a dialogue someone comes to them and they have a dialogue and by the end of the dialogue the difficulty, this a sort of clarity has emerged. So it's a sort of device. But again, that was very pertinent to my experience because I had this very significant dream shortly after she disappeared, as we used to call it, um, in which she came back and I asked her where she'd been and she said, I've been sitting in a water meadow. And then she said the words... If you sit very still, you can hear the sun move. And in the dream and waking up from the dream, I, I just had this sense that I called even then the peace that passeth understanding. But it, it, I kind of had this feeling that even though we didn't know whether she was dead or alive, and we didn't know for 20 more years somehow it felt like a communication that if she was dead or alive, if she was in this state, it didn't matter. Although, obviously, the other p polarised feeling for, that went through those 20 years was the other extreme of those poles, if you like, was the fear that got worse as time went by, that we'd all die and we'd never know what had happened to her. But then when, when it comes to her disappearance, mm. when did you sort of find out that she 
disappeared because obviously she was on her way to see her yes. friends and yeah, she well, never that, got there. No, that no, she went to visit the friend. She left the friend's house oh, to, come to home. catch the last bus home. We were all out that evening and one of my brothers has felt endlessly guilty because he gave her the lift to her friend and he offered to pick her up and take her home. And she said, no, it's fine, I'll get the bus. And I was out with my boyfriend and we didn't get back till the next morning. And my mum had gone to visit friends and she got back after the bus would have got Lucy home. So she didn't check in her room to see if she was there. She just presumed, you know, she'd got back on the bus all right. And then the next morning my mum went in to wake her up because she was then supposed to be going and visit our visiting our dad the next day who lived up in Yorkshire and um, discovered that she hadn't come home. So when I got back with my boyfriend, by that time, you know, I, rem I always remember my mum just rushing out of the house and we lived in a, a converted cider mill and there was a millstone in the middle of the drive that was a kind of focal point and she came rushing out and that's where you sort of turned the cars round and remember her standing by the millstone saying um Lucy didn't come home last night and my one of my brothers was swearing and saying if anything's done anyone's harmed her I'm going to kill them and and I, for me I could never really I find it really difficult to go to that place of immediately thinking somebody's harmed her and yet I couldn't think of how else she couldn't be there but somehow there was a real deep kind of unwillingness I denial I suppose to go to that place and then we um we had mum had called the police but they weren't really taking it seriously they just thought oh just after Christmas young woman gone out probably gone off with her yeah, boyfriend probably drunk yes and, and she didn't have a boyfriend you know she as far as we know she'd never had a boyfriend it wasn't kind of on her agenda mm. and you didn't find out for what another 20 years did you say yes then you didn't know what had happened all no that time. we had to um carry on with our lives and the incident room was kept open in Gloucester constabulary for seven years but nothing ever came to light they did lots of interviews there were posters all over the trees in Cheltenham with a photograph and mm. a label missing person and how does one cope in that time when someone disappears and there's no closure, I mean, yes, it's horrific if, obviously, if someone's killed, they die. But but there's a certain amount, I guess, not of comfort. I'm sort of struggling mm. for the right words here, the appropriate words. But mm. you didn't know, and that not knowing, how do you live with that? Yeah, well, I've, as I said, I did eventually, well, over 18 years, I wrote a book, and one section of the book one of the chapters is called The Not Knowing. And um, I just, I find an image in retrospect. At the time, the first year was just full of confusion. And I think I, I, I do say that in a way, when you're, something like that happens in a family, I think the siblings, it's, there's not much research done into the suffering of siblings in those situations because, in a way, they lose their parents for a while anyway while they're preoccupied with the grief. 
and I was at quite a vulnerable stage in my life. You know, I was 25. I did finish my degree. My relationship with my boyfriend um, didn't survive. Um, I, I remember, I mean, I just remember the early year, the first year particularly, is a time of huge isolation. None of my friends really knew how to relate to me. Did you feel angry about that or did you understand? Because it is such a hugely... Um, well, I think I was an... I think confusing and in my thing. sort of... My great inner search um, that came after we found out what happened to Lucy, really, I, I had to go on this journey to somehow go through the thaw of those years because I think part of me, was all of us, was on hold. Not the not knowing had this sense of being on hold, but having to go on living and developing a life. And I think. Did you it, think that she would walk through the door miraculously one well, day? Well, my daughter did. Yeah. And interestingly, she had her, you know, everyone had their own way of coping. And strangely, my mother had this. She, she said that the more time that went by, the more. To her, it felt that she was all right, which I find really difficult to understand, but that was her way of coping. We didn't really talk about it very much as a family, so that was quite destructive in a way. You know, my mum was a very sort of stiff upper lip, um, stoical person. She became an architect. Um, she was an amazing woman, and she kept us the family together physically but you know emotionally there was a kind of distance in a way she coped with setting her own life up as a single parent which she did successfully but we all had our our ways of coping and not coping and I think for me an image came to me eventually after we'd found out and it was felt like I had this image of the of the Arctic where this just this waste of ice with no seal holes, nothing in it, and as if I was just out on the ice looking, looking, something in me was just looking. And then eventually I realised that I had to go in if I wanted to survive. It was just this feeling of, I call it the frozen silence. It is, there was a lot of, unspokenness in that time and I think that for me and I and I call the dream I had the that experience the shining silence where there weren't any words because everything was perfect and in place and to speak would be to somehow um, damage that wholeness so it was from this sort of the journey was I sometimes describe it as going from the frozen silence to the shining silence. And I was greatly helped on that journey by going on on um, seven-day silent Buddhist retreats, which were very much about needing to sit with what is actually arising. And that mm. was where the thaw could happen. And that was where I, I was um, able to have an insight a year after we found out what had happened to Lucy. No, it was less than a year. Anyway, I, I had this sense that what I was having to... I had to take responsibility for my own pain. 
and that that I needed to do that for and I needed to find a way forward that could be could somehow transform this legacy into something that could be spoken about. You're listening to Justice with Edwina Grosvenor. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You must have heard about Fred and Rosemary West first and, of course, the house on Cromwell Street and the police went in and bodies were being exhumed. So, well, what happened? that was a big local story, right, in your yes. area. But I wasn't living there then. I was in mid-Wales. And, right. And I was working in North Wales, actually. And um, So you're watching this... this unfold through the media? Yes, I didn't really want to watch the media but I had you know obviously I read newspapers mm. and this is before you knew yes about Lucy. we heard at first there were these there was just this news about three bodies in the base in the garden of Cromwell Street had been exhumed and even then some me- media people were in contact with my mother obviously looking to see missing women in the area and and I said to mum I think you need to phone the police you know we all had a sense that this might be something to do with Lucy so when we phoned the police my mum did they said no we know we've identified the three women that we've exhumed but and they thought it was only three yes and they said well we'll be in touch if we've got any further we need any contact so on Lucy's birthday, which was March the 4th, I drove down to my mum's from Wales. And by that time, there were only the three women then. And and so, and I tried to see my mum every birthday of Lucy's. That's when we did remember her together. And as I was driving down, I was, I just had this sense that it was something to do with Lucy. And um, <clears throat> strangely, a friend of hers who she'd been at university with, who I still knew, had been having dreams a year before about bodies being coming up out of the ground. And they'd been, it had been so disturbing, she'd had to have some counselling about it. Wow. Anyway, the next day, the day after her birthday, the police phoned and said they had some news for us and they wanted to come over. So we knew that it was something to do with Lucy then. And they two young policemen arrived, and 
I just remember Russell's red tie and he had a scar on his cheek and I remember the other other man's very highly polished brown shoes and they came into the house and they said that Frederick West had been talking to them and he told them that there were five more bodies in the basement and one of them was called Lucy. So before they'd begun to dig the basement, they told us, which I think in retrospect was slightly strange, but anyway, they couldn't identify. They had to identify the, the them by dental records. And interestingly, Lucy had um, lost one of her front teeth in a, a hockey match at school, and it had been stuck back in, but that... And, and one of the police women, who also had known Lucy at school, told me later that she'd remembered that Lucy had had this hockey accident and she'd lost one of her front teeth. And that tooth was was missing again because of the violence, no doubt. And so that was one of the identifying features. The violence at the hands yes. of the West. Yes. Then the whole media... Circus began, began yeah. and I remember we went out for a walk the day that we found out my, my mum in her inimical manner, which wasn't very typical really, she kind of wanted to do something normal, so she said let's go shopping in Cheltenham, which was very odd, yeah, and I said yes, let's go, and <laughs> I, retail therapy. yes, which wasn't what she usually did anyway, and it certainly wasn't what I was up to, I just wanted to go for a walk on the hill, but I thought okay, we'll go along with this, so we all went off shopping, traipsing around Cavendish House in Cheltenham. We got nice? home, didn't don't remember <laughs> buying anything, might have bought some more knickers in Marks and Spencers. And then we got home and there were numerous messages on the answer machine, all from different newspapers, etc., wanting us to phone them back. And we didn't. I was absolutely outraged at this. I thought, how extraordinary, you know, they can just do that and think that you're going to pick up the phone and say, hi, yes, you know. Yeah, you love know. to talk yeah, about it. Yeah, love it. it. I've yeah. just been shopping, got myself some new pants. Yeah. Let's, you know. <laughs> and so it was extraordinary. Anyway, at that point, I labelled them the pain vultures. And um, that became quite, you know, and I wrote about that in my first piece of writing, which was published in The Guardian Weekend in 1996, which I called Salvaging the Sacred, Lucy, My Sister. And that was a hugely healing thing for me to do, to find some words and share the experience from a sister's perspective. And it was the longest thing they've ever published. It was 10,000 words. And I worked with Deborah Orr, who was a brilliant editor and is a wonderful journalist. And she was so sensitive about my needs and so she sort of healed my prejudice against the media and um <clears throat> and it was great that even down to the which advertisements were going to be opposite the text she invited me into the guardian offices to show me what it was going to look like when it was published and you know she did it really well and she said she was going to stay in the office on the day it came out and you know to respond and there was a huge response and that was really another aspect of my journey towards healing was realizing that 
I did have what I could offer was my skill as a writer and that, that it was my responsibility as Lucy's sister to find some words. And that, you know, that was hugely important to me because I remember feeling that everybody in this situation has got a role. We haven't got a role. We are just the families of the victims. Yeah, the silent you know, victims. We, and that, and, I, and it, I just had to start writing when... I didn't read much in the media, but then during Rosemary West's trial, so of course we had the the year when we couldn't have a funeral because Lucy's bones were um, kept as an exhibit for the defence. So when Frederick West committed suicide a year later, um, we could have a funeral. But before that, we'd had a memorial gathering at the, the Friends Meeting House in Cheltenham. Lots of her friends came and mm. people spoke and that was healing. Because am I right in thinking that the media, certain sections of the media, of course, were portraying Lucy as being sort of, you know, she was out at the bus stop, she was maybe being provocative, maybe there was some flirting that went on with Fred. Wasn't there some sort of... Well, I did none Media of that got to me, but what say. did get to me was when the Times, during Rosemary West's trial, um, pub because I still didn't read papers then, I just kept in touch with what was going on at the trial. I went to the committal trial, which is when I saw Rosemary West, and that was when they were sifting through the evidence to see whether there could be a trial. But then... I only went to the judges summing up at the main trial, but during that long trial, there was this the this headline in not on a subheading, um, which said, Lucy, come this loving racket with me, which were Fred West's words. And the that was published. Brian Leveson hadn't done his summing up by then. So there was this inf this this evidence that was being used <clears throat> that was picked up by the media that hadn't be yet been challenged, but it was being used to be challenged. But there it was. She come this loving racket with me, and this whole all Fred West garbled, cruel distortion of he, of saying that he'd had to kill Lucy because. Um, that that she'd become too infatuated with him and wanted to take him home to meet her parents, which was like so far from the truth of actually she wasn't even in Cheltenham. You know, she couldn't possibly have met Fred West and formed a relationship with her. She was at Exeter University studying English literature, becoming a Catholic. You know, it was just like so remote. And the strange thing was that her priest who received her into the church, happened to be in Cheltenham the night that she disappeared. So he was seen as a suspect for a while. You know, that there, there were some strange things that happened, but that, what really got me was when one of my friends phoned me up and said, having read this, these words in the Times, I didn't realise that Lucy knew Fred West. So that was when I just thought... Nobody's going to know anything about Lucy if I don't write something. I've mm. got to... So I really, my first piece of writing was about reclaiming her from the West and the media and sharing, 
you know, the personal experiences that I'd had in relation to this. How destructive did you find the sort of attitude of the media towards sort of what you were going through, what had happened to Lucy? You know, this is something that, you know, comes up a lot, particularly in criminal justice. Mm. The media can be such a source for good, mm. yet it can be such an unbelievable tsunami mm. of negativity mm. and can cause huge problems within trials, within people's own sort mm. of healing process. How do yes. we how do we even go about thinking about how that could change? And maybe it can't because maybe it's down to particular individuals who don't really care maybe about mm. your suffering and your family's suffering. Well, <clears throat> yes, it has been a, a huge issue and I did write about it. I took part in a piece of research at Edge Hill University with Professor Phil Scrayton who was very involved and still is with getting justice for the Hillsborough case. But he wisely um, invited people to be part of this research. And, and the research was all about looking at the different agencies that get involved around these high-profile crimes. So there was a, a dad whose daughter had been shot at Dunblane. There was two relatives uh, who'd lost family in Hillsborough, there was some somebody from the, the Marchioness disaster, and I was there, you know, from the West case, and we were all asked to contribute to the research, you know, what does it actually feel like being in these situations? So the piece that I wrote, I called it, if you don't tell us, we'll have to make it up, which is what a journalist actually said to my mum when he came oh to God. the door. Oh, my God. So I just really did go down that path of challenging the media and I I made the mis you know I made the mistake of going on a television program which was about challenging the making of a film by Portman Entertainment two years after we'd found out what had happened to Lucy and they were going to use all the evidence that all that was locked up and by the official solicitor because it was deemed to be too polluting to the national consciousness and too too dangerous this was going to be used by this portman entertainment to what make this film the... because they were going to make money for the west children by using this information oh anyway it didn't happen but during that campaign that i got involved with i found myself on this television program being exploited and i met Anne-Marie West then, and I met... Anne-Marie West being... Fred West's um, daughter. Yeah. And then I thought, no, this isn't the way. You know, I'm good. this is not good for me to get involved here. So I just backed off. And now, interestingly, now it's 25 years since this case, and, I, and it hadn't even occurred to me, but lo and behold, the media are now saying, ooh, 25 years, you know, time to do something you know, memorial about the West case. And so I had a choice again, am I going to get involved or not? By that that time, I've been working in prisons for a long time. I've written my book. You know, I'm, I'm on to the next thing in a way. I'm trying to write another book now. But this story doesn't seem to go away. And I remember even when it just started happening, I just thought, we're in for a long haul. So I've kind of had to... Um, make my strategies in that and 
continue to use my voice. So I've decided, you know, Lucy, the thing that was so difficult for me about Lucy's death was that she was gagged so she couldn't speak her truth. And I felt I had to speak something of that truth. And I also felt that her aspirations were so sort of pure and full of integrity and I needed to uphold that in some way. So that's sort of her, my love for Lucy and my my huge respect for the way she was living her life and that the absolutely incomprehensible gap between that and the way that she died mm. has sort of continues to spur me on to find my voice in certain situations. So I did, but there again, it's so, I think the thing that's so difficult about it is the way that people are making money out of it. Mm, and it's interesting that you said it's 25 years and they want to do a sort of memorial something to the Wests. And just even that sentence, it's what about a memorial to the victims yes, well, that's of the what, West? You know, it always centres around this entertainment. This yeah, well, sort of... it's this whole thing about, you know, the notoriety of the criminals and the identities of the people who die. But again, it's always, you know, I've always talked about the fact we call it the criminal justice system. Mm. And the fact that the word criminal is in there, I'm sure has a lot to do with the fact that everything centres around the criminal. And victims you hear time and time again are the ones that get mm. dealt with really rather badly at the hands of the mm. justice system. And I wish we could just call it the justice system and mm. leave the criminal bit off. I'm not saying that would change things remarkably, but I think there is something in the language, the fact that it's so criminal-centric and we tend to there is, idolise I, these people absolutely. in some sort of sick, sick way. But I do think that, for me, it's been very much about a need to, to remove labels, actually. You know, victim and perpetrator. Like they're different things. Yes. Yeah. And I think not. my... my inner journey that happened from, you know, 1994 to about... 2000 which was very much led by having to look within on these retreats and realize that I couldn't I could see that everybody's got unresolved pain of one sort or another and you know it's how you deal with it that makes the difference and I could see that there were four possible ways and that one way was denial, which is hugely common. And, you know, we all do that to a certain extent in our lives. You know, what we prefer to, you know, I realise, you know, in my own life, yes, you know, I can, I can tell a story in a certain way, but it's the bits that I'd rather edit out that are the bits that are in, are actually make it whole. So there was the denial route. There was the dump it on others, which we see mm. everywhere. And the most extreme expression of that would be murder. And you meet that all the time in the prison work, you know, blame, cut, you know, inability to control emotions. You know, they come out. You know, I met a man in prison who had killed his wife and we sat down and had lunch and he told me, this was in Grendon Prison, and I just found myself crying. I just thought, yes, and now you've got to live with this. You know, this happened in a drunken moment, and now here you are. How do you live with this? I think this is a question that's come up for me in the prison work, is how do you live with this? Mm. But then there was the third route, was the letter eat or eat you away, 
corrode your life and the end result of that would be suicide, you know, the most extreme expression of that. And the only creative, imaginative way forward seemed to be this route towards forgiveness. And I don't know where that even came from, but it, I just had a sense that, yes, this was the way out. You know, I have got an imagination. You know, I am creative. At what point did that hit you? How many years after Lucy disappeared? Well, this happened only two years. Oh, no, this happened after we found out. Right, so, so I and it was so you found out twenty years. Nineteen ninety four, we found out. Nineteen ninety five, I was on a retreat with this Chinese Zen master who'd been a monk or since he was thirteen, and I, I had this experience of seeing these different roots, and I, that was when I made a vow to try and forgive the Wests. Um, and the first thing that happened when I came off the retreat was I experienced murderous rage. And that was like when I really connected with th this is vital work. You know, I have got to do this work because I could see how easy it was to be corrupted by what had happened and for my own life to be destroyed and for me to, um, you know, and I, and I could see that... It was my responsibility to, you know, deal with this in a way that could possibly bring something positive out of it. But it was more for the sake of my children. You know, it's just like, actually, you know, this is part of our family history. We didn't talk about it for 20 years and that wasn't very healthy. I'm very interested in healing. My work has been as a homeopath so I've always been listening to other people's stories, you know, I've done a lot of, had a lot of experience of the, of the path towards healing, which always has to face the bits you'd rather edit out. Mm. And so I had to do it for myself. When you decided to forgive Fred and Rosemary, mm. what steps did you take? I didn't really like the word forgiveness, and I think why. Well, I it, to me, I, I I sometimes describe it as it's barnacled with eons of piety, but it certainly <laughs> is, and it doesn't have very good associations. It didn't really mean anything, so I made the vow, experienced the murderous rage. How long did that last for? Oh, it was just brief. It okay. was just like a sort of very physical experience of like this heat coming up in my body, pulling my hair, roaring, clawing at the earth, realising that I was completely out of control and that I could definitely kill somebody. And was anybody and with you and around you at the time? Yes, yeah. I, well, I went outside to express this. I remember Nick, my husband, saying, you know, just be a bit quiet, you know, Jack, can you just have your murderous room? rage yes, exactly, a little quieter, please? Exactly. <laughs> Think of everybody else. You know, yeah, I'm just, really isn't on. <laughs> but it's quite interesting because that my work with forgiveness project you know that's the bit marina picked out to head my story and you know i realized that you know murderous rage is not still not a very accept, acceptable aspect of female behavior in our culture oh, interesting. You know? mm. and i also connected with rosemary west's murderous rage which definitely has its roots in its in a ruined childhood um and you know the the thing in the case you know the, th the difficulty for me in 
moving towards in my imagination this person Rosemary West that I've never met who's locked up for the rest of her life who's had such a huge influence on our lives has been you know this gradual moving towards moments of authentic compassion for her through learning about you know having to own and look at my own murderous rage my own deceit my own you know I was very shocked by Rosemary West's ability to lie but you know over the years you know I've had a look at my own there's a phrase unfeigned heart and I just think yes how do you how do you really have an unfeigned heart you know, because I think that we all have a certain feignedness about us mm. because, you know, that's how we are. So are you saying that actually having experienced the murderous rage mm. made you sort of be able to sort of empathise a bit with Rose's experience maybe of childhood and what led her to become well, I, the murderous woman that she ended up? Well, I, I just, in that moment when I knew I could kill, I thought, you know, the, the gap's not that big, actually, you know. Oh, so you almost sort of saw yourself yes. not quite equal to her. but No, but I think I, my potential to do that is there. Right. And once I'd made that connection, I couldn't safely think nothing in their world has got anything to do with us, which mm. is what a lot of her friends would say, and which I used to say. And... Um, and I remember, you know, I had a, I think the journey's been about having to face my own prejudice, actually, very much undo my own prejudice and going into prisons and meeting people who've killed people, raped people, burnt down people's homes, robbed people, you know, meeting them without the labels has been a huge part of my healing because I've had to really realise that... This is about becoming human and becoming human is about recognising my own potential for all these things and recognising my own need for forgiveness and realising that forgiveness isn't a noun that you tick off, it's an ongoing verb in everyday life. You're listening to Justice with Edwina Grosvenor. It sounds like your dreams played quite an integral part to your healing, which mm. is really interesting. I'm fascinated by dreams and dream analysis, which, of course, some people sort of poo-poo. But it's interesting to hear you talk about that. So was it a great help? I'm sure you had nightmares as well. But what role did that Yes, I think the play? dreams played the deepest <clears throat> part in my healing in a way, because I see them as, um, you know, I quite... I feel an affinity with Jung's insight into dreams and the, the fact that we have we share a common consciousness or mm. unconsciousness, mm. you know, that dreams are sort of are universal. The imagery can be universal and they speak of of what we maybe can't access in our waking life that we need to look at or that I, for me I felt there were three really significant dreams and the first one I've told you about the second one was really very soon after we found out what happened to Lucy and in that dream I wanted to know what was left of her I had this need to know have something tangible some sense that yes that, because it felt very unreal 
And in the dream, I met the pathologist and he took me to this, show me this pink sack in the corner, which looked quite inviting, you know, pink sack present, opened it up and it was full of bones, but they each bone had a number on it. And it was like a toy skeleton kit. But in the dream, it became a full-size skeleton and I, I wanted to put my arms round it. And as I did, it became Lucy in flesh. And I remembered what she was like to hold. And she put her head on my shoulder. And it was like, and I woke up and I thought, you know, I, I, I need to do something about this. And so I got in touch with the police and I said, I, you know, I had no idea what I was going to do, but I just felt the need to go and do some sort of, to reclaim her bones in a way, because at that point they were an exhibit for the defence. And the police were quite accommodating, you know, and so they said, oh, and, but they weren't quite imagining what I had in mind. But we met at, they were in Cardiff, and we met in a chapel of rest, and two friends came with me. And, um, and I had this idea about doing some sort of ceremony that was to do with putting objects in with Lucy's bones, reclaiming them in some way. And so I kind of consulted the family about this and my mum had asked me to put these two, this, these two soft toys in with her. One was called Chocker, he was a straw stuff with straw and lion from our childhood we used to play endless games with that my mum had kept on Lucy's bed all those years and this other funny little toy called who we used to call one-eyed bun eye because he only had one eye and he had smart little velvet trousers and a piece of um cloth that came um I don't know how it had come into the family but it was supposed to have belonged to um, one of the prime ministers, I'm going to get his name, it was a piece of um, very special wool, anyway it was an expensive piece of cloth that had become Lucy's snuggler that she'd had as a child, so those were the things my mum wanted me to put in with her and I took um, some lavender seeds which reminded me of our childhood, I took a piece of um, sheep's wool that I got from a nearby mountain top and I took a, some water from the river in our garden with some rescue remedy in it and I took a candle and I took some incense so they're kind of representing the elements and um, and when we got there um, Russell said he and he was our liaison officer. He met us there, and we were shown into this room, chapel of rest, with a full-size coffin. And you know, he said, "Oh, you just sit there for as long as you like, and then you know, we'll go off and have a cup of coffee." And I said, "Well, I haven't really come here to do that." <laughs> I said, "I've come. I want to put some special things in with Lucy's bones." And amazingly, the real pathologist, not the one in the dream, he looked at me. Oh, no, he wasn't the pathologist. He was the um, mortician, that's right. He'd had to bring the box from the mortuary. He looked up and he said, well, I don't see why they shouldn't do that. And so we were left and he unscrewed the coffin and inside were the two boxes. 
and, and I just looked and I looked at the smaller box and I said, um, is Lucy's skull in there? And he said, yes. So I just felt that the whole experience was like a... I was just in a state of grace and strangely I knew exactly what to do and I just went and I got the box, I opened the lid, I took her skull out, I recognised the shape of her head, I wrapped the skull in the in her snuggler and I and her friend Beryl, her childhood friend, had bought a little bunch of of um, primroses and she put that in the bottom of the box and I put the wool in there and we just gently put the skull back and closed it and then we opened the other box and it was just like just for a moment it was just like this jumble of bones and I and then I just looked again and I sprinkled the lavender seeds over it and then oh I know I took a painted egg we'd been at St David's on our Easter holiday and I'd painted an egg and I'd taken it and I saw her hip bone, which is like got this a very convenient egg cup shape curve in it. And so there, and then I sort of just put the egg in the in the socket and and then we lit the candle and then we all held hands. The other friend who came I'd studied homeopathy with, she's also an osteopath, so I thought she'll know about the bones. <laughs> which bit goes well. Yeah. So anyway, we all held hands and just in silence and then screwed the coffin lid down and off we but when we held side hands I just had this incredible feeling that this ceremony had been done for all the women in the world who died at the ha in a in a violent way and I also felt that my both my grandmothers were there it just felt like a sort of indigenous ceremony which had come from some deep place like the dreams and then later on, I actually have done some research with Indigenous people on, in, on Vancouver Island and attended some ceremonies in relation to their approach to the healing of trauma. And so it felt completely natural when I was telling them about this experience. So it, I knew it was a kind of something that was all right, but I also knew that not some people just wouldn't understand it at all. And did that feel like... I'm sure you'll never get closure because I don't even really know what that's meant to mean. Mm. But did it did it just feel wonderful and right and like you'd been able to finally have your moment with Lucy? Yes, but and that one was followed. You see, that was all happened before we could have the bones back. So a year later, we had the funeral and I went back again. And this time it's quite different, but I put in the book of her poems my mum had published. I put in a little jar of honey from our bees. I put in, each of my children gave me something to put in. So when it, she finally went and my husband had made a, um, a box from Welsh oak for her coffin. And so the final burial was in a place that she loved, which was this little church, Hales church next to Hales Abbey that was destroyed by Henry VIII but she was studying the medieval paintings on the wall in that church and it's a beautiful peaceful place and her Catholic priest came her her godfather came who's an Anglican and and we all stood by the grave and lowered the box into the grave and at that moment a shaft of sunlight came and it had been raining for quite a long time. And then even more amazing, these 
phantom cockerels appeared out of nowhere scratching around and we looked, my brothers and I looked at each other and my mum because we used to have phantom cock as a child, oh as, in goodness. our childhood and Lucy used to paint them so it was just like and the silence that we experienced, the depth of the peace and the silence, you know, and my dad was there with his third wife who had never met my mum, you know, and it was like everybody had sort of transcended their differences and, yeah. and we were held in this deep love. And I think that was the sort of closure of that bit of the journey, you know, laying Lucy to rest, reclaiming her, finding her place. And that's become an important place. And my mum died in 2009 and her ashes, she, she wanted to be buried with Lucy, so her ashes are in the grave now. And I'm not sure whether I want to go there or not yet. <laughs> but You can decide on that another day. Yeah. <sighs> so, yeah, that was the closure of that. But then there was the whole journey about having to face the reality that she wouldn't have died if it wasn't for two human beings. And then that leading eventually to the prison work. You wrote to Rosemary, didn't you? Yes. And can you tell me what happened? Yes, well, again, this was a, a, at the end of another retreat. And I, I, ha I had this realisation that I wouldn't have had to go on this huge journey to, you know, mine my own, excavate my own humanity if this hadn't happened. So in a way, there was this momentary sense of gratitude, which people would find very difficult. But I have come across this as part of a Buddhist practice, actually. And I have a verse that I come back to that really inspired me from the beginning, from a Buddhist text, which is, I will learn to treat those pressed by strong sins and sufferings as a precious treasure very difficult to find. So in a way, you know, I, I wanted to tell her that, you know, I wanted her to know that I didn't feel, I didn't wish her ill. I did, wasn't saying I forgive you, you know, I wanted her to know that I, yes, I too have experienced rage. I experienced deep fear and that I wanted to offer her an image that came from the retreat actually which was it was in Switzerland I was and it snowed for three days and all the branches of the trees were weighed down by the snow and I walked past and my arm brushed one of the branches and it sprang back to where it was meant to be and I kind of wanted to just give her that image you know the springing of the branch you know just as a hope I suppose and so I did, but I didn't post the letter for four years because I didn't want to send it with any expectation of a reply. And um, and then one morning I woke up and I thought, well, if I'd heard that she died in prison, which will happen one day, um, I would re always regret never having sent the letter. So I did send it and I also sent my mum a letter by that time she was suffering to, from dementia and she'd lived with me for a while and then she was in residential care and I'd, I'd just written her a letter and put this envelope in you know in, I said in case you can find any words mum and I got these two letters when we came back from holiday one was from the prison 
from saying we have given your letter to MS West and she wishes us to inform you that she does not want to receive any further correspondence from you and if you do send any more we will just keep it in security. How did that make you feel? Lots of different feelings really. I just felt I think the worst feeling was, you know, has this been a complete waste of time? You know, have I spent so much of my life going in this direction? You know, so I realised that I did have some, you know, even though I waited four years, you, you know, I suppose, yes, I would have liked to have heard something. And then I just realised that's completely unrealistic. You know, you knew that. And then I kind of began to see it as, I planted a seed. You know, I even wondered whether she'd been given the letter. That was another thought. But, you know, I, I thought, well, you know, if she did read the letter and she got to the end of it, because it was quite a unnecessarily, probably, complicated letter, but I didn't want to dumb it down, mm. you know. So I wanted to stay true to my own integrity. I just thought, well, I, you know, I've, I've planted a seed you know maybe in a moment of despair she might remember that it might mean something and so I kind of decided to go with well I've done my best I've gone as far as I can that's fine I've completed it so what did you really want from the letter what were you hoping to achieve I I suppose really I, I I wanted an opportunity to actually meet her and you would have met her yes mm. And I wouldn't have known what I would say. I, but, you know, according to my approach to life, <laughs> I would just, you know, I think I would just wait to see what arose and respond. You know, I could, there are questions I could ask. You know, she's the only person who knows why Lucy got in the car. She always denies having anything to do with her mur- with the victim's murders. So I do know that she has suffered a huge amount of rage herself. You know, that's the issue that she's been working with, with someone who's a forensic psychologist. Mm. Do we know what happened to her in her childhood? I mean, I can imagine we, it well, wasn't we know, good, but... Yes, well, we do know that... Um, she was sexually abused by her father. We know that. What about um, forgiveness for Fred? I know he killed himself mm. quite quickly, but you talk a lot about Rosemary. What are your feelings yes. towards him? Well, I, strangely, when we found out that he'd committed suicide, it was New Year's Eve and we were up celebrating with some neighbours and I'd got into a conversation about justice and what can justice be in this kind of case because I certainly don't believe in the death penalty and I hadn't actually come across restorative justice by then but I do have worked a lot with that and I find that's a really helpful form of justice particularly for people labelled as victims but also for people labelled as perpetrators because it's sort of working towards a truth and a context Mm which is really helpful, but I just remember saying, I don't think there is any justice. There's not going to be anything that happens that's going to take away the pain. You know, it doesn't, there's nothing, you know, this is my responsibility. Mm. And And even Rose spending so much time in prison, the rest of her life doesn't feel like justice either. No, it doesn't. doesn't, 
make no, it okay that they did all those things to those no women. but also i think what i find really frustrating about that you know yes i do believe that there are some people who for whom to be back in society would be dangerous Absolutely. but it was also it would be dangerous for them so, you know, maybe that is the only solution. And I have a friend once who used to have this idea that the death penalty was kinder than a lifelong of imprisonment. You know, so that got me thinking a bit. But, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't believe in that. So when I heard that Fred West had committed suicide, my initial thought was, oh, well, maybe is this, some, this is some kind of divine justice, you know, because my immediately thought was, well, at least I won't have to see him now. You know, I was dreading having to see him. But actually, <laughs> my feelings changed, and especially when I met his daughter, Anne-Marie West, and I still have a connection with her. She phones me up sometimes, and, oh, okay. and she talked to me about her, how bad she felt um when her partner's her father had died or something it had reminded her of her dad's death and how she missed him and you know and even though all the things that he did for her I found it really hard to understand but suddenly he became a person he was her father was it almost like she couldn't go there with the victims and your sister Lucy because it seems to me yes. listening to that that's mm. fairly insensitive mm. to be talking about the death of her father yes. but I mean this yes is where it's but that was where I just think you know you never know what's going to happen on this journey you know yeah okay You're so I'm listening to this I, well it made me have to think very lot about the amount of loss she's had mm. you know her mother was murdered by her father her stepsister was her aunt was her her dad's committed suicide you know it's like and and she's actually um, living in Gloucester, where where she suffered a lot because she looks so like her father. Oh my goodness! So you mentioned two letters, and you received one from Rosemary West. Who was the other one from? Well, amazingly, it was from my mum. You know, I recognised the the addressed envelope I'd written with my writing on it, and it, and I opened it up, and inside on a piece of paper the last words she ever wrote and how she managed to write them I don't know because and she just had written in very wobbly writing I love you if after listening to this podcast you want to explore what forgiveness is all about given what Marion had to say in her podcast then do refer back to an earlier podcast we did with Marina Cantacazino who is the founder of the forgiveness project <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Justice. If you found it interesting, you can discover more about the work we do within the justice system by visiting our website, onesmallthing.org.uk. One Small Thing is a charitable organisation striving for positive change in the justice system. If you would like to subscribe to Justice, you can do so via your usual podcast platform. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.